The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I think there is something in each one of our lives, something that, that we all gravitate towards. And it comes from the root that every one of us as a human being, we are wired to build. We're wired to build something. And so when we hear stories of someone building something, it's inspiring. Whether it's you've read, reading a biography, or maybe you're watching a documentary, or even a reality show, or someone's building a a business, or building a life, or building something, we're drawn towards someone just digging in and being passionately building and constructing something. So for example, just recently, this past couple weeks, I learned of a new coffee shop out here in this community. And uh, went, went, I, I love coffee. And, and so I was like, well, I got to go check this place out. And I went in and I started talking to the, the people who run this coffee shop. And man, it, it doesn't matter whether you like coffee or not. When you talk to these people, this is their, I mean, their passion. They, they actually roast their own beans right there. They import them in and they roast them. And if you ask them about it, they'll take you over. They'll show you the machine. They'll show you how it operates. They, they'll take you. You want to order a cup of coffee? There's like seven different ways they make coffee in this place. There's, it's not just like a drip brew, an espresso machine. I mean, they've got all these different contraptions. I mean, it looks like a chemistry lab in there. I mean, it's It's crazy. There are these things that have got this, like, this glass piping that drips coffee down. I mean, it's unbelievable. These people are so passionate about it. And I, was, I had a, a friend of mine, a pastor buddy, he actually used to be on staff here at West Pines. Uh, his name is John. We, we launched him out several years ago, and, and he planted a church, our sister church, Crossway. And uh, he and I, I, I were meeting for coffee. I'm like, all right, we've got to go to this, this new place, and we're sitting there. And, and um, he is, is it's kind of sad, he's not a, a coffee drinker. It's part of the reason he's not on staff anymore. And so um, he, he is, so he's in there and, and he asks the, the barista, he's like, so do you have anything de- decaf? And it's like you saw this vein just kind of come out on their forehead and they're like, no, we do not have anything decaf. And, and even him like listening, he was just, I mean, he was getting into it. He doesn't even like coffee and he was even getting into just the excitement of, of what's happening there. Because there's just something about when you see someone who's, building something, even if you, you don't even have any interest in that at all, but you see their passion for it, you see their strategy behind it, you see that they unstoppably, they're, they're unstoppable, their motivation to construct and build something and be a part of something, and when you see their drive, man, it kind of draws you in, doesn't it? There's something inside you that, that kind of resonates with that. There's something that gets kind of the blood pumping. And when you see someone else in completely different field from you, but they're passionate and they're learning and they're building and constructing, it kind of lights a fire under you a little bit. It's inspiring for, for you and I a little bit. And so what we're looking at in this series in, in Nehemiah is this is an incredible story of building something. Great story of building something. You can't encounter this story of Nehemiah and walk away not having been inspired. 
You can't hear this story of what Nehemiah is passionate, driven about. He will not be stopped. Nothing will get in his way of what he is mandated and called. He's on a mission from God to build something. And when you see, we encounter the story, you can't help but get the blood pumping a little bit for whatever it is that you're called to build and whatever it is that we together are called to build. This is an incredible story, and even more so when we dig into this story, we peel back the layers and we learn from this story, it is so instructive. In fact, it is known as one of the greatest leadership texts in history. What we get from the story of Nehemiah is it's his memoirs, and it's almost like it's a coach that has been through his life, he's, he's fulfilled what he was called to build and he, and he lays before us. It's like he's intimately sharing his story with us like a coach, like a mentor. And he's sharing how he built it and we see his leadership struggles. We see his victories and we see his failures and he's sharing them with us. And it is one of the most phenomenal, one of the most instructive texts on leadership in history. And it starts just right out of the gate in chapter 1 with something really powerful for us. Right out of the gate, we see the very foundation, whatever it is that you are called to build, whatever it is that we are called to build together, what he talks about in chapter 1 is the absolute necessary foundation. It's the question that you have to ask. If you have not asked this question, if I have not asked this question, I've got to pull the e-brake, I've got to stop in my tracks, and I have to ask this question. And it doesn't matter where you're at in your building process. You may be like early on still trying to to search what are you calling me to build? Or maybe you're switching gears in your life and God, I think you're calling me to build something else. What are you calling me to build? You may be early on. You might be right in the middle of it. Maybe you're one of those people, no, I know why I'm on this planet. I know what I'm here to do. But this question, we've we've got to stop and insert this question right in the middle of our building to make sure that we've got the right foundation. Or you may be at a season of life where you feel like you've kind of, I've done my building. Maybe you're about, you're about ready to retire, or maybe you're kind of downshifting a couple gears, and you feel like, okay, I've, I've done my building, I've been there, I've done that, rah, rah, conquered the world, I, I get all that, but I'm kind of, I'm in a different mode now. But this is still an absolutely essential question that we have to ask. The story of Nehemiah starts out of the gate with an absolutely key foundational question that confronts every one of us. Let's open up this incredible story, Nehemiah chapter 1. It's also in your bulletins in the listening guide. It's going to be up here on the screens. Nehemiah chapter 1, it's in the Old Testament. What's great about this story is the, the beginning of this is actually going to give us the historical backdrop that we're going to want to know as we study this for the next several weeks. So let's look at this. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So this is the beginning of the story. Let's just get a little bit of the backdrop here. It starts off introducing Nehemiah. So we know that these are actually the words of Nehemiah. This is important. This is not a biography. It's an autobiography. 
He's writing, you hear his, which is great because you hear his thoughts. He'll tell you his prayers. I mean, this is kind of an intimate memoirs of his story. So these are the actual, the words of Nehemiah. And then it gives us kind of historically where this is. He says it's the month of Kislev. It's in the 20th year. And that actually helps us place it right where we, right in history. So we kind of know where it is. And you can imagine at this point in history, this is hundreds of years before Christ. So they're not using a BC, AD kind of calendar. And the way they would calculate what year it is, is by reporting what year it was in a particular reign. We'll find out in chapter 2 that the ruling king of the time is King Artaxerxes of Persia. And so we know that this is in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So this is right about, four. give you an idea historically, this is about 445 B.C. So let me kind of place that in a couple of historical events. So if you remember the story of the Battle of Thermopylae, where the Persians uh, come in and they, they fight against 300 Spartans, okay, that happened about 40 years before this instance. Okay, so maybe about a generation before, 30 to 40 years before. Kind of put it in perspective, uh, Alexander the Great is going to be born about 90 to 100 years after this. Okay, so that kind of puts it in history. The Persians are the superpower of the world. The king of Persia, Artaxerxes, is pretty much the, the ruling, kind of the ruler of the known world at this time. Okay, 445 BC, that's where we're at. But it's also important to know where things are at in the, in the history of Israel. You've got to know that to understand the, the value of this story. So let's rewind a little bit. If you remember over the summer, we did a series, uh, Grandpa's Campfire Stories. You remember that series? We talked about Grandpa Abraham all the way back in, in Genesis in the very beginning. We talked about how from Abraham, the entire nation of Israel came from Abraham. And there's a promise given to Abraham that through your descendants that will be this great nation, Israel, through your descendants, I will send a Messiah that will save the world. Well, that's about 2000 BC. You've got, after that, you've got Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and then there's these 12 sons that become the 12 tribes, and you've got the guy named Joseph, and he has this multicolored coat, remember, in, in Egypt? And then you remember a couple hundred years later, they're enslaved by the Egyptians, and then Moses comes in, and the whole, let my people go, and the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, okay, you got, you got that. And then, and then about a thousand BC, so a thousand years after Abraham, is when you have all these kings. Got a guy named Saul, you've got a, a famous King David. King David kind of puts Israel on the map, globally, from a military standpoint, and then you've got David's son, the famous King Solomon. You've heard of King Solomon. He's the wise king. He put Israel on the map from an economic standpoint. They're extraordinarily wealthy at this point. But they disobeyed God. Now, this was the, this was the nation that through them, God was going to send a Messiah to save the world. And what you have is the series of kings that instead of leading their people to worship God, they start worshiping these idols. In fact, some of them actually took these idols. They're just statues they'd made out of gold, and they actually went into God's temple and placed them in God's temple. It was about as blasphemous as you could get. And so what happens after about 1,000 B.C., after Solomon, in punishment to their disobedience, he divides this nation into two nations. So you've got Israel's now two kingdoms. You've got Israel to the north, which is about ten of the tribes. And you've got Judah to the south, which is two of the tribes. And Judah, you have Jerusalem. And here's what happens historically. In the, uh, around 722 B.C., 
the ruling power, the superpower of the world at the time, the Assyrians come in and they wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. And yet Judah, that should have been a warning to Judah, the the southern kingdom, but they still disobey. And a little over 100 years later, in the late 500s, 590 to 580, now the superpower of the world, the Babylonians, come in and they wipe out Jerusalem and they wipe out Judah. And unlike the Assyrians, they take a group of these Jewish people and they bring them back to Babylon. Okay, so that happens in about 580 B.C., now fast forward, the Persians take over. You have the story, if you know the, you know the Bible stories, you have the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Okay, you have that story happening. And then you've got Persia then takes over. Now Persia's the ruling power. And now we're at 445 uh, BC. You've got Nehemiah. The, Jerusalem was conquered about 100, almost 150 years before. You've got Nehemiah. And to kind of put it in the Bible, this is one of the last stories, even though it's kind of stuck in the middle of the Old Testament, Chronologically, this is one of the last stories before the whole biblical story goes quiet for a couple hundred years and then Jesus shows up. This is one of the last stories. You've got Nehemiah. He says, I live in Persia. He lives in Susa, in the citadel, in the fortress, in Susa. This is one of the most important cities in Persia, one of the most important cities in the world. He lives there. And you notice what he said. He said, I had some brothers returning from Jerusalem, returning from Judah. And he says, so I asked him, what's going on in Jerusalem? Some of the Persians had sent some Jews back. He sent a guy named Ezra back to rebuild the temple. And he's wondering, okay, what happened? 13 years ago, Ezra left and he's rebuilt the temple. But what's going on? He says, tell me about Jerusalem and about Judah. So here's what he said. Here's the report. Verse three. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah asks, and these might be the, the first guys Nehemiah has ever actually personally known that have actually been on location in Jerusalem. So he says, okay, I know that like a decade, like 10, 13 years ago, some people left and they went to kind of go back from Persia to repopulate Jerusalem. They sent a guy named Ezra there. I know, he, I think he's a great leader from what I heard. He rebuilt the, the temple, but what's it like there? You just came back and here's what they say. It's not good, man. This is really, really bad. It says there's, the walls are, are crumbled. There's no gates. I mean, the, the gates are in shambles. They've been fired. It's still rubble. It's really bad. It's not just not safe. It's shameful. I mean, they're just kind of living. There's people that have gone back to kind of redo life there, and they're living in the rubble. It's a really bad situation. And it's really, it's actually kind of hard for us to grasp how bad this situation is because it's hard for us to, to understand what it would be like to live in like a, almost like a city-state. I mean, in, in the United States, our borders are like oceans. But in this, there are, are people that could be aggressive towards them that may live just miles away. And so in, in, it's hard for us to appreciate how important it is for there to be walls and gates. If there's no walls and gates, they are absolutely defenseless. I mean, it'd be like a people living in the middle of, of combatants and they have no military and no police. They're sitting ducks. A little army could just come through and like, oh, there's people living in that rubble. That rubble's been sitting there for 100 years, but now there's people in there? Well, let's just go take all their stuff. 
You just have a little militia or, or a little uh, group of bandits or, or a little army could just come in. Just one little army could just walk in, take all their stuff and pillage, pillage them. What the situation is, they are not in a sustainable situation. It is bad. There are, the fact that there are no walls, that was absolutely essential in that time period. This is not a sustainable situation. The walls are broken. There are no gates. There's no protection. It, it's like this, these people that went back were kind of the hope to rebuild Israel. Not sustainable. It's just a matter of time. And maybe by the time Nehemiah is talking to this guy, they may have already been wiped out. It's that vulnerable. Now I want you to see what Nehemiah's reaction is. Look at this, verse 4. He says this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I'll catch this. He says, okay, oh man, you just got back from Jerusalem. What's happening? Tell, give me the news. And I say, man, it, it's bad. It is not good. There's no walls. They're broken down. The gates are burned. And what's Nehemiah's reaction? Does he go, oh my gosh, really? That's a, man, that is a drag. I had really high hopes for Ezra. I thought he was a, a great leader. I, I thought it was going to, man, that's disappointing. No, that's not his reaction. Is it really? Man, that's discouraging. I was really hoping to hear good news. I'm bummed out now. No, does he say, oh my gosh, you kind of get choked up like, oh my goodness, I, I was hoping for something better. Is that, was that his reaction? No, no. D- does, he say, uh, does he say, oh my gosh, and does he get really emotional and say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm so emotional about this. It's kind of shocking me a little bit. Does he, does he, does he say, oh, I, I need to be alone? Does he have just a good cry that afternoon and then kind of journal things out and then he's all better? No, this is what he says. He says, tell me what's going on. They say, Nehemiah, it's not good. And he all of a sudden staggers back, hands on his knees. He, he sits down and he just breaks down and weeps. I mean, bawling uncontrollably like tears streaming down his face, snot coming out of his nose. He's heaving. They probably start all crying together. And he's like that. He says, for days. It's not just that afternoon. I was just having a rough day. I just got emotional. He weeps all day. He starts weeping the next day. It's for days he is weeping. He says, in fact, I go into mourning. This is, a, this is an actual mode for them. This could be any number of things. They, to go into to mourning mode, they might tear their clothes. They might shave their beard off, which would be like literally a humiliating fashion statement in this time period. They, they might shave their beard off. They might put on sackcloth. They might, put, they might just dump ashes on top of their heads. And we don't know what his, his job allowed him to do, but he, we do know that he goes into mourning. It's not like he has this visceral, instantaneous, emotional reaction. He chooses to go into mourning. It's not like, wow, I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't know why I'm so emotional. He knows why he's so emotional. He weeps and mourns, and he fasts and prays. He fasts. He can't eat. And he prays. Now, why is he, I mean, what's the deal? I mean, that's a really (laughs) kind of shocking emotional reaction here from Nehemiah. I mean, it's pretty shocking. What's the situation? Why is he so emotional? Well, I mean, he's a, he's a Jewish man. This is his hometown, Jerusalem. 
I mean, he's sad, right? I mean, he's really sad. Now, I want you to think about your hometown. I, I grew up down here in South Florida. Maybe, you know, some of, about four of you grew up down here in South Florida too, okay? Maybe Hialeah, North Miami, Hollywood, you grew up down here somewhere. Okay, maybe you grew up in, in uh, New York, or, and we'll pray for you if you did. You grew up in New York, or Michigan, or Georgia, or Colombia, Cuba, Venezuela. Maybe think about your hometown, Okay, maybe you hear that it's in bad shape. You hear your hometown's in bad shape. I mean, I, maybe I'm just cold-hearted, but I don't know that I'm going to have the level of reaction that Nehemiah has. might be sad, nostalgic, oh, that's a bummer, but am I going to have the reaction that Nehemiah has? But hang on a second. This can't be nostalgia. There's almost no chance Nehemiah has ever even been to Jerusalem. It was conquered Almost 150 years before. Do you realize that's like the distance between today and the Civil War? Okay, so it's not nostalgia here. And it's like, well, I mean, that's where his family's from. You know, maybe his great, great, great grandfather lived in Jerusalem. Okay, that'd be like, you know, my, my, uh, my ancestors are from uh, Denmark. My great, great grandfather, great grandfather lived in Denmark, and if you went to Denmark and you came back, and I was like, hey, so I've, I've never been to Denmark. You know, what's, what's Copenhagen like? I've always, you know, wondered what Copenhagen is like. And so you say, wow, it's really gone down the tubes, actually. I mean, it's, I mean, pastries are not what you wanted, you know, from, from the Danish people at all. I mean, it's really a disappointment, you know? I mean, it's, it's kind of like gone down. I mean, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, that's sad, I guess, you know? I, I kind of hoped for more, you know, from, from my people, but What's happening here with Nehemiah? Something a lot more going on. It's not just, oh, I'm sad, I like that city. What's happening? It's so important that we see why he has this reaction. And to see that, you see it in his prayer. You you look at his prayer, it's really profound. It starts in verse 5. This is the prayer he prays out, cries out to God. Nehemiah 1, verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You have got to hear this prayer. Okay, remember... It's been 150 years almost since any of the ancestors of Nehemiah have lived in Jerusalem. I mean, his, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, probably his great-grandfather, they've probably only known Babylon or Persia. 
And 150 years later, generations later, before any of his ancestries had ever seen the temple, ever seen, ever seen Jerusalem, you've got a man praying, and his prayer is dripping with the word of God. You see how powerful that is? Generation after generation after generation after generation. And this man, I mean, you've got to believe those families, amidst all the Babylonian customs and all the Babylonian values and all the Babylonian gods, but generation after generation after generation, and we get a sneak peek and we see that they had held fast to to Yahweh. He says, you are the God, the Lord God of heaven. You are almighty God. You are the one that make covenants and you're the one with steadfast love. I mean, that is dripping with the law and the psalms and the songs of Israel. I mean, something was preserved there. You see how beautiful that is? Something was preserved there for Nehemiah. And he's praying through this. He acknowledges he's a worshiper of the one true God, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he prays that. And then he prays. It shows something really powerful. He gets it. He understands what's happening. He quotes Moses. And he plucks out of the entire Old Testament the most relevant probably the most relevant single verse for his situation of the entire Old Testament. He plucks it out. This is how well he knew, this is how much he was a worshiper of Yahweh, how well he knew his scripture, how well he'd been trained up and taught up. He plucks it out. He said, God, you told us this was going to happen. If we disobeyed you, and we did, we worshiped other gods. Even I, I, I've been a, I'm a sinner. My father's house are sinners. He says, you told us you'd scatter us throughout the world. He says, but God, I'm calling you out on your promise because he says, God, you also said this, if we return back to you, you will retake your people who you've redeemed and you will draw them back to the place where you will make your name great. Do you see what he's doing? He's calling out God on his promise. He knows the scripture well enough. He's plucking out the most relevant verse maybe of the entire Old Testament. You are going, if we turn to you, you will bring us back you will bring us back to where you want to make your name great. This is powerful. It shows you his relationship. shows you his relationship with God. It shows you that he gets it. This is why he's weeping. He understands God's plan to save the world, promised thousands of years earlier to Abraham that God would send a Messiah through his people and it would save the world. And he understands the hope of the world right now looks like it's broken down on the side of the road. And it looks like all is lost. And it looks like, God, I was excited. You're sending people back to Jerusalem. You're sending people to build up the temple. And now I hear that they're on the brink of being annihilated. Man, you understand that nothing of this affects Nehemiah's life directly. But he weeps because the plan for the salvation of the world is in jeopardy. So it seems. Now let's just finish up chapter 1 with verse 11 and, and we'll pause for the day. Look what he says. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear, fear your name and give success to your servant today. 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. No, I was cupbearer to the king. I love how chapter one ends. If you read fiction or you read stories, a good fiction writer ends a chapter on a cliffhanger, right? It's like, and then they pulled out a gun and pointed it at me, period, end of chapter. And you're like, what happens? Okay, this is how it ends. He's like, God, how could you do this? And then all he says before the chapter ends in chapter one, he says, and grant me success today before this man. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And you're like, oh, he's going to do something. Like, okay, all right, he's about to step into action. He's not just going to be crying and and weeping and mourning. He's about to step up into action. And we learn that he's the cupbearer to the king, the most powerful man in the world, which is a pretty good gig that Nehemiah has. We'll learn a little bit more about that next week. I just want to jump into this story here, and I just want to pick this apart and just stop here for the day on chapter 1 because there's some incredibly important things that we've got to ask. This chapter really confronts us. And it forces us to take inventory, and it really forces us to ask this question. What are we building? What are you building? Because you're building something. You're wired to build something. When Adam and Eve, the first two humans that God ever made, he placed them in the Garden of Eden. Beautiful garden. There's no sin. Everything's perfect. There's no evil. There's no darkness. He placed them in the garden. And what did he say? Hey, go blow up a raft and go float in that lagoon with a fruity beverage and just relax. Have a vacation in the Garden of Eden. It's perfect there. Is that what he said? No. He says, I'm placing you in the garden. Now go cultivate it. Build. Create. Prune. Before there's any darkness or evil, they went to work. See, do you realize you are wired to build? You'll wake up tomorrow and be building something. You have to be, whether you realize it or not. You're building something. You're going to wake up. You're in the middle or about to start building something. This chapter confronts us, causes us to take inventory. What are you building? Maybe tomorrow you're going to wake up and what you're going to build is you're going to say, you know what, my goal, whether I, I realize it or not, if I get down under the surface, really what I'm building is I'm building the most comfortable life I can. I'm building something safe, predictable, secure. I've got everything in place. What I'm building is I'm building a comfortable life. And so my goals are based around that. My work is based around that. My finances are based around that. My relationships are based around I'm building something comfortable. What are you building? You might be building success. I'm building, well, I know what I'm building. I'm building a career. I'm building a successful career, a successful business, a successful practice. I know what I'm constructing right now. I'm I'm, I'm building my education. I'm building my experience. I'm building my resume. I'm, I'm climbing the ladder. What I'm building is the most successful career that I possibly can have. I, I want success. I want accomplishment. I want platform. I want followers. I want I want a breadth of impact. That's what I'm building. So get under the service in my heart. What am I building? I might be building, I just want a, a fun, pleasurable, exciting life. So I'm building experiences. So I'm building, I, when I get money, I spend it. I spend it on great trips and great vacations and, and uh, great stuff because I want to f- enjoy life and that's what I'm building. I'm, I work to play and I, that's kind of how my life is, is arranged underneath the service. That's what I'm building. What are, what are you building? Maybe under the surface, I mean, ask that, dig down. Is it, maybe it has to do with my health, my body. 
You're just kind of, man, my focus right now is, is my health. I want to be, uh, it, it's when I have the healthiest body or I want to sculpt my body. It's maybe out of health or maybe out of vanity or maybe some combination of both, but that's what's most on my mind. And th- underneath the surface, ask, what, what is it that I am building? Or ask it another way. What is it that makes you weep and pray? What circumstances stop you in your tracks and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to, you stumble back, hands on your knees, you, you're, it so gets down to the core of what you're doing on planet earth that it stops you and you weep and mourn and pray. What are you building? See, here's what's so phenomenal about this passage It shows us, I mean, this is the beginning, this is the foundation of whatever we're on planet earth to build because what he is weeping and praying about has nothing to do with his life. In fact, for him to be concerned about the walls and the gates of Jerusalem means he's going to jeopardize his career. He's going to jeopardize his health. He's going to jeopardize his security. He's going to jeopardize his wealth. He's going to jeopardize his enjoyment. He's got a good gig. He can, I mean, you might not be able to get higher up as a Jewish man in Persia than being the cupbearer. He's got a good gig. And we're going to watch it. He's about to jeopardize all of it. Because something's grabbed a hold of his heart and he's weeping and praying. See, here's what we learn from this. Christian. Christ follower. Mathetes. You're left on this planet to build something. You're left on this planet to weep and pray for something. It's the kingdom of God. See, there's, there's a, a struggle that sometimes as Christians that we, we fall into where it's actually a type of Christianity that we're taught. It's taught that if we align ourselves with God, then we just ask God to help us in whatever it is we're building and he'll help us. And we try and operate that version of Christianity and we get frustrated. And we get frustrated because we're like, God, I'm trying to build my career and I'm, I'm being obedient and now I'm trying to build my career and how come you're saying no here? How come you seem disinterested in a- answering these questions? Or God, I've asked for comfort and this makes me very uncomfortable and I've asked for you to change the timing, make things go faster, make things go slower, make things happen now and you're not answering them. Why aren't you answering them? We're confused. Like, God, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build, um, build wealth here. I'm trying to build this. I'm trying to build that. And God, why aren't you answering this prayer? And what we find from this, this text, we see Nehemiah, the types of prayers that God is answering is not the prayers that are based on us building ourselves, but building something even bigger than that. See, here's the, the paradigm is when I, when I follow after Jesus, when I realize what Jesus did to save me and I follow after Jesus, I align my heart with God's heart. I, that means then I will weep for the things that God weeps for and I'll pray for the things that God's planning and then I'm, I, I rejoice when I see that he answers those prayers in miraculous proportion. We've got to ask ourselves a tough question underneath the surface. What am I building? What am I really building? See, before we can weep and pray, you notice the first thing Nehemiah did was he asked, hey, what's the state of Jerusalem? So before you can weep for the right things and pray for the right things, we've got to ask, God, 
Am I, what am I building? Am I weeping for the right things? What parts of your kingdom are right around me that are in disrepair? God, what are you weeping for? I've got to ask those dangerous questions. What do you want me to weep for? We've got to ask that dangerous question. And Christian, be ready when you ask a dangerous question like that, when you pray a dangerous prayer like that, be ready for how God answers that because he will put a burden in your heart that is so strong and so unstoppable that you're ready to risk everything for it. But you'll never feel more alive. A friend of mine, he owned a, a boat business. And he uh, worked in boat business didn't know Jesus, but started going to this, this church, and um, he, he came to Christ. And kind of a radical turn in his life, he became a Christian, and he just started devouring, I mean, truths about Jesus. And he heard at his church that they had a, a need. He got involved at his church. He'd do anything at his church. He would mow lawns. He'd pick up trash. He'd serve on leadership. He had served in almost any position from, you know, the janitor to an elder at the church, one of the main leaders at the church. He did everything. And then, and he's still just kind of surrendering his life to God. And then one day he, uh, he, uh, he found out that his church had a, a need. They had um, no student pastor. And so he went to the pastor and he said, hey, I mean, I... Uh, if you want, I, I've been sensing for God, I'll, I'll leave the boat business and I'll come on staff at the church and I'll serve um, with your students. And, um, and, and the pastor said to him, okay, that's fine, but um, you're in your 40s. Um, that's a little unusual for someone in the stage of life that you're in. He says, that's all right, man, you have the need, I'll, I'll step in. And he stepped in and he worked with their students and he worked with the school. They had a Christian school there at the church and he started working with those students. He came on staff, he, he left the boat business altogether and he's now serving with the students and he's pouring into them and God's just blessing his winsome personality and he's, he's building the student ministry and he's helping at the school and these students are kind of rallying behind him and then he says, you know what, I'm not praying dangerous enough prayers. So he starts praying an even more dangerous prayer. He starts, he says, God, look, I, I just fully surrendered. He, he's, he didn't say it in these words, but he's basically saying, God, make me weep for what you're weeping for. And he says, okay, God, I, I'll do anything. And he actually said, he started praying this particular prayer. He says, God, I'll do anything, including drilling wells in Africa. I mean, whatever you want. And he even told his, uh, com his community group that, he's like, this is the prayer I'm praying. Pray this with me. My wife and I and our kids were just feeling like we need to pray any prayer, no matter what it is, even drilling wells in Africa. And what do you think God called Mike Rittering to do? Drill wells in Africa. He's the guy just to the right of that pipe soaking wet with a ridiculous smile on his face. That's Mike. He's drilling the well that uh, we as a church sponsored in Cabo right there. And he prayed this open prayer to God, saying, God, whatever it is you want. And you know what happened next? He, he sold everything. They felt called to Africa, he and his wife. He went and visited Africa, and he took his, his daughter with, with him, 16 years old at the time, one time to Africa. His wife had never even been on a mission trip before. They sold everything they had and they went over to Africa and he gave the rest of his life serving, drilling wells, serving in orphanages, and serving at the school that they had there. 
And the funny thing is he used to say that, he said, man, I'm a boat builder that God took to the middle of the desert. But what's so funny is I remember when we took a team over there a couple years ago and Mike and I were, were talking and it was, he had just been over there about a year and I'm like, man, what? I mean, you glad you did this, man? I mean, this is pretty dramatic. And he says, I'm home. And he said, let me walk you through all the things that God prepared me for for this moment. He says, I worked on boats all my life and I worked on all these diesel engines. And he says, all the vehicles over here that we don't have mechanics for are diesel engines. He says, God equipped me to be ready to repair all the vehicles here. He said, you know, I, I signed up to serve in the, uh, among the students. I was in my 40s. It was ridiculous. Everyone told me it was a bad idea, but God trained me how to work with students. And now I run an orphanage. He said, I got to get involved at a Christian school there. I had no idea what I was doing with this Christian school. And, and then God was preparing me because he was pr- preparing me to bring me over to Africa to run a school of about 400 students that wouldn't have access to education otherwise. See, Christian, Mathetes, follower of Jesus, one that you've said, if I'm following after Jesus, I renounce all that I have. I take up my cross and follow Jesus. The first step, if you are going to build anything, ask this question. God, am I weeping for what you're weeping for? Am I praying for what you're planning to do? Am I building what you're building? Because that's what he's called you to do. Can I challenge you to pray that dangerous prayer tomorrow morning? Wake up 30 minutes early tomorrow, get the coffee ready, sit down with your journal and pray a dangerous prayer. Say, God, Holy Spirit, you can speak into my life. You can say whatever you want into my life. I, I, am, I renounce all that I have. I hold it. I just want to make sure that I'm building what you want me to build. Am I weeping for what you're weeping for, praying for what you're, what you're planning? That's the challenge. Now, you may be here and you may have heard God's plan to save humanity. Do you realize the, the plan a couple hundred years after Nehemiah to uh, cut to the end of the story, Nehemiah is going to work to build these walls and build these gates. And there's a man that walked triumphantly on the back of a donkey a couple hundred years later through those gates. His name is Jesus Christ. And he entered into Jerusalem and he's actually weeping as he entered in. By the end of the week, he would be nailed to a cross. And it was the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who had been nailed to the cross. And what was happening when he surrendered his life like that? God was pouring out the wrath for your sin and my sin, the punishment on Jesus. And he died on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And that was God's plan from the back in the beginning. Way even before Abraham, his plan to save humanity and his plan to save you. And maybe this morning for the first time you feel God calling you to himself and you're feeling God say, just put your faith in Jesus to wash away your sins. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you want to put your faith in Jesus this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Just pray this right there in your seats between you and God. Say, God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. Thank you. Thank you for washing my sins away through the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose again from the dead so that I could have eternal life. I give you my life. I want to serve you in whatever way that you call me to. 
Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you'd like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.